Sweet. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Um, so, past, uh, Ed and Hannah um, are our pastors here, and they're not here this morning. They are currently eating barbecue in Texas. They are watching the live stream. Hannah sent a photo in a massive line for barbecue, so I feel like they might be watching this on their phones as they're lined up for barbecue, so that sounds about right. Um, it is Palm Sunday, which means that it's the beginning of the week leading into Easter, um, and I've been, giving the daunted, I've been given the daunting task of speaking today. So. I don't know how to take this. They always, I, have a, I very rarely speak at church, and every time I do it, it's when Ed and Hannah are away. <laughs> so read into that what you will. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into it. God, I pray um, this morning that it would be you that speaks to us, Lord. We thank you that your spirit says that... Um, you lead us into all truth, so I just pray this morning that I can just be a vessel, that I can say words, but ultimately it would be you speaking through me. And um, as we go through this story of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, I pray that you would show us something powerful. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, in my nerves, and also because I was bored, I logged on to chat GPT this week just to find out what the fuss was all about. And I typed in, tell me about Palm Sunday. And the answer's kind of crazy. Uh, does anyone use, anyone use this, ChatGPT? Does anyone know what this is? Yeah. I just, for the first time, I've heard plenty of podcasts about it. I'm kind of sick of hearing about it at this point. But Palm Sunday is a Christian holiday that falls on the Sunday before Easter. It commemorates the triumphant entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem where he was welcomed by crowds of people who spread palm branches and cloaks on the road in front of him as a sign of honor and respect. The name Palm Sunday comes from the palm branches that were laid on the road as Jesus entered Jerusalem. In many Christian traditions, palm branches are still distributed and waved in church services on Palm Sunday as a symbol of victory, joy, and peace. It does seem like a bit of a missed opportunity. We don't have, we're in LA, like the one place that would make sense to wave palm branches. Can someone do that next year? Just obnoxiously wave around a palm branch in the back? That'd be great. Uh, palm Sunday is significant because it marks the beginning of the Holy Week leading up to Easter, which includes Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday. During Holy Week, Christians reflect on the events leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection and prepare their hearts for the celebration of Easter. In many churches, Palm Sunday service includes a reading of the gospel account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, as well as a procession of the faithful waving of palm branches Overall, Palm Sunday is important in the Christian calendar as it marks the beginning of Holy Week and reminds believers of the humility, sacrifice, and ultimate triumph of Jesus Christ. Thank you, ChatGPT, for that. Um, I did actually also, just out of curiosity, I was like, write a sermon on Palm Sunday. <laughs> and I, I'm going to be honest, it was terrifyingly better than the sermon you're about to get. So... Um, Though the temptation was strong to just print it out, it literally had the same structure as what I was going for. I was like, this is terrifying. Uh, on that note, we're going to read about the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem from Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. And would you please um, make welcome our superstar reader for this morning, Catherine. Follow that. Yeah. This is 
the chat GPT version of the Bible? <laughs> no, it's NIV. <laughs> uh, okay, so this is Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to, thank you, and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoke, spoken by the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Thanks, Captain. So to fully understand the story, we're going to go back in time a little bit just to fully appreciate this moment and what it might have meant to the Jewish people. By this point, the Jews had been waiting for centuries for a deliverer. In the 700 years or so before Jesus was born, this once mighty nation of Israel was defeated and exiled by a series of empires. First, the Assyrians, who destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, followed by the Babylonians, who exiled the Jews to foreign lands, and then this diaspora of Jewish people scattered across the region as the Persians, the Macedonian Greeks, took turns controlling their land. Some of the Old Testament stories take place during these times. You can read those in the book of Daniel, in the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, but this displacement and hopelessness continues all the way through the 400 years between the events of the Old Testament and the New Testament until finally the Roman Empire governed what was left of the Jewish state. It's hard to imagine what that must have felt like for God's chosen people, whose very identity was tied to the idea of living in a promised land to live through centuries of captivity to invaders, exiled to hostile, hostile foreign lands and seeing your holy sites desecrated. If you think about it, the entire story of Exodus and all the way through to when Israel finally inhabited the promised land, their whole identity was wrapped up in, you are my chosen people and I have a land for you. And then for 700 years, they experienced the complete subversion of that promise. They were exiled from their land. They were cut off from the temple where they were supposed to worship God. We love to throw around the term generational trauma at the moment, but by this point, you could say the Jews had such a long history of displacement. How could they not carry the trauma of that in their body? These were people who had displacement in their DNA. They also knew the stories of a faithful God who time and again had always led them out of captivity. From Moses, who had freed their ancestors from Egyptian slavery, to Cyrus, who liberated their forefathers from Babylon, the Jews had so many stories of captivity followed by God's provision of an amazing deliverer. So, they waited. Under Persian law, they waited. As the Macedonian Greeks tried to force them to abandon their Jewish faith, they waited. 
As the Romans set up the Judean state and desecrated their temple, they waited. And I, was, I read that um, during this time in exile, this is how the system of the Pharisees and the synagogues came about, that because they were separated from the temple and pushed out of their land, all they had was the oral tradition and the writings that they had. They didn't have a physical space that they could go to to do their sacrifices and things. So they reorganized, and they, the Pharisees were these teachers of the law, and they obsessed over the written text, because that was their only connection back to their ancient form of religious practice. And I'm so sure that many people must have lost faith and lost hope in this time, and just as many must have been fighting to keep hope alive. In the years before Jesus was born, you can imagine late-night conversations around dinner tables where guests are speculating about who might be this next deliverer. I wonder if there was a rogue group of Torah, of Torah scholars arguing in the back of a synagogue about the coming Messiah, maybe a skeptic who had lost all hope and said that we'd got it wrong, fighting with a true believer who's forcing them both to pull back through the scriptures saying, we must have missed something. You can imagine these conspiracy theorists saying, you know, I think it might have been this person or it might be this person, they're going to come from this part of the land. Just this waiting in their DNA urging them. You think about the prophecy that Isaiah gave that said, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. All through the Old Testament, so many prophets during this time of exile talked about one day a deliverer will come. And you can imagine, for the ancient Jews, they had seen it happen with their ancestors in Egypt, they'd seen it happen under Babylonian rule, why wouldn't they think, okay, at some point, he's coming, he's coming. Another hundred years goes by, he's coming. He's coming, if we just keep waiting and praying, he'll be here. In the meantime, they told themselves the same stories of Moses and Joshua and David, these incredible tales of these victorious kings and leaders of Deborah, who would lead them into battle and win against their enemies. You think about these prophecies that talked about a baby that would be born. I wonder how many mothers held their newborn babies in their arms around this time and wondered, could this be the baby? I mean, Moses' mother had no idea. She just gave birth to a baby, put him in a little boat thing, and then watched him sail off to hang out with Rafe Fiennes. I was listening to that soundtrack. I think just as I was writing this, I couldn't stop hearing that, deliver us. <laughs> Great soundtrack. Uh, but you wonder, you know, like, how many people had babies and thought, please, God, let, it, let this be the child? Because it had happened so many times before. Even David, these babies were born with no fanfare. There was nothing special about how they were born. How many prayed, could this be the one the prophet Isaiah spoke about? As the people waited, Jesus was born. At his birth, we're told that the sky was filled with a host of angels, that a bright star appeared over the stable where he was born, and the shepherds and wise men from foreign lands came to see him. The angels literally told the shepherds, this baby born is the Messiah. And the wise men could read in the stars that the new king of Israel had been born. 
Can you imagine for those people, after the 700 years of waiting, literally an angel appears, whatever the heck that looks like, if it's up there or if it's inside, I don't know, telling you the things that your ancestors have speculated about and wondered about and conspiracy theorists have talked about is happening. It must have been life-changing for these guys. So for them, the expectation and the waiting was done. They were like, it's here. I wonder what the next 30 years for them was like. Like, did they just go back to their hometowns and go, uh, we definitely, that happened, right? <laughs> like, imagine an angel tells you, like, the, be the craziest thing in your entire life happens, an angel appears and says, this is the Messiah, the thing that your nation has been waiting for for 700 years. You go there, you, the baby is in fact there, the angels, the sky is filled with angels singing about it, and then what? You just go back to shoveling sheep poo? Going, he's, he was born, right? It took 30 years. For the wise men, they went back to their lands. They knew that he was the king of the Jews. It had been prophesied for them. They arrived, they saw him, they saw the miracle. It would be 30 years before Jesus actually began his ministry. Sometimes I even wonder, you know, for the people in the surrounding houses, do you think they had any idea what was going on in the stable when Jesus was born? You know, it's like how we always, everyone says, like, ever since this movie came out, the world has never been the same. You know, like, they just sort of feel like something broke the world. Anyway, whatever. It's a bad side thought. It would be 30 years before Jesus actually began his ministry, but you cannot tell me that these shepherds and wise men didn't spend the rest of their days telling every single person they met that they saw the Messiah born. They must have. So for the people that were waiting, there must have been this expectation growing. Something was coming. Something had arrived. They must have recalled the miraculous circumstance of his birth. There must have been whispers about that baby born in Bethlehem, which was only about five miles out of Jerusalem. I wonder if the rumors then grew as Jesus began his three years of ministry. Most of Jesus' ministry took place around Galilee, which was about 65 kilometers uh, trek north of Jerusalem. And it was in this area that most of what he did took place, which includes the Sermon on the Mount, the wedding at Cana, the feeding of the 5,000, a lot of the miracles that we read about happened kind of in a particular region, and then Jesus sort of slowly made his way down to Jerusalem for the final days. Which is not to say that he didn't go to Jerusalem at times during his life, but just most of the stories we read took place around Galilee. Very quickly, in his ministry, his travels were filled with signs, wonders, and controversy. And by the time Jesus was preparing to go to Jerusalem for his last week of ministry, he'd already amassed quite a reputation. Again, thinking about what the sort of subconscious genetic DNA of every Israelite or Jewish person at the time was like, hoping and praying that one day some deliverer would come. And then there's this guy walking around Lake Tahoe, raising the dead, healing the sick, doing these miracles, feeding 5,000 people. Every one of those 5,000 people, okay, so maybe not every one of them fully understood that like there were only seven baskets or seven loaves of bread or whatever it was. But some of them must have been like, it's crazy, we saw this crazy miracle. How many of them told their friends who told their friends, who said, have you heard revivals breaking out in 
Lake Tahoe. I don't even really know where Lake Tahoe is. I'm, I'm Australian, but it feels, it feels right. Uh, great. So we know that Jesus had 12 disciples, but then he also, Luke 10 tells us, there were 72 followers that also were following him. So it's basically this sort of encampment of people following Jesus around. And there's a moment in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus tells those 72 people, now I want you to go out into the region of Judea. So Judea was the kind of state that the Roman Empire had allowed the Jews to live in. Um, they'd kind of recreated a Jewish state. A lot of Jews had come from all around the world where they'd been exiled, came back to their sort of homeland under Roman rule. And Jesus sent out his 72 followers and said, I want you now that you've followed me and you've seen what I do, go out and just start ministering to people in my name. And so they go out to all these different cities around Judea, around Jerusalem, around Bethlehem, around all those places, and they're performing all these miracles. And it obviously was amazing because it finishes with them coming back to him saying, Jesus, even the demons responded to us and obeyed us in your name. It was crazy. So you think about this mass of people telling the story of who this person Jesus is and the miracles that are happening. Again, in that environment of people waiting, it must have been building this sense of expectation of what was going to happen. How many people were healed, brought back to life, delivered, who told, Je who told the stories of Jesus' love and power? I even think about that woman at the well in Samaria, who at the end of her interaction with him, which was pretty simple, it finishes with her telling her friends, I think this might be the Messiah. So we have 30 years of shepherds and kings telling the story about a baby that they saw born. And then we have three years of thousands of people touched by this guy's ministry. Talking about what an incredible speaker he was. There was the guy that had him like spit in some mud and push it in his face. And he's like, it was crazy. You spat in my face. There were so many versions of stories of what Jesus was, who Jesus was, the kind of power that he had, the demons that he cast out, the guy that was like, this whole herd of pigs just like ran into the ocean. I just woke up one day. Were the centuries of waiting finally over for these people? It's interesting, even uh, after the feeding of the 5,000, I think it's in John's Gospel that it says this, um, after the feeding of the 5,000, we read that Jesus actually had to pull away from the crowd because they were so excited that they were going to crown him as their king by force. So they clearly thought, this is our guy. The Jewish people who had been so desperate for a king deliverer saw in Jesus' ministry the idea that they had found their man. And if all this wasn't enough fanfare to lead up to his entry into Jerusalem, only a few days before his arrival, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany, which is only two miles from the city. So 30 years of shepherd stories and king stories, three years of crazy Miracles, controversy, demons, healings, dead bodies. And then just before he goes into the city, two miles out of town, he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. Is it any wonder that a crowd gathered to celebrate his triumphal entry into the holy city? And so, as the Passover festival began, Jesus enters Jerusalem surrounded by his disciples, the 12, his followers, the 72, and there must have been more. We already know the Bible doesn't specifically record the women in his life and count them by number, but we know that there were a few. 
there must have been a whole gang of people who already knew Jesus and loved him. But then how many more pilgrims? It was the Passover festival, which meant that uh, they, would, they would gather to bring um, their sacrifices and to kind of come back and do their traditions in the temple in Jerusalem. So people were gathered from all around Galilee. All of his friends and family who had grown up seeing him were all coming together to Jerusalem. And by this point, they'd all seen three years of ministry to all but confirm that this is our guy. He's here. John's gospel tells us that the crowd even went out from Jerusalem to participate. So it wasn't just his friends and family. It was also people from the city who heard. And they must have heard stories. Again, there can't have been that many people as there are in the world today that stories like this wouldn't have traveled everywhere. Luke tells us that there were even some Pharisees that were there casting a suspicious eye and roll read from uh, Luke's gospel. How they saw the crowd get so excited and they're like, these guys need to calm down. As the crowd laid down their cloaks and palm, tr- palm leaves, they cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel. Hosanna means save us. So they knew, or they think they knew, They definitely meant what they said. These guys who had been living for 700 years as displaced peoples with all the genetic trauma of being denied a sense of who they were finally found their great deliverer. They'd been waiting so long for someone to come and restore the kingdom of Israel to them just as it had always happened in the past. God was going to overthrow their oppressors, defeat the Egyptians, defeat the Ammonites, the Moabites, just as he'd done. Maybe open up the earth and swallow the Roman Empire. Maybe topple them. Maybe send some plagues. I wonder if they were like conspiracy theorists kind of figuring out that stuff. Do you think God will do another thing of plagues? Could that happen again? Save us. Blessed is the King of Israel, the Son of David, they cried. For this crowd of people, the centuries of waiting for a deliverer finally felt over. So Jesus was welcomed to the city by a crowd caught up in the euphoria of the possibility that their military savior had come to win back their kingdom. In the joy of their moment, you wonder if any of them actually noticed the nature of his arrival. How appropriate that Jesus came not on a mighty war horse, but on a donkey. A donkey that was a symbol of peace. They were usually ridden by merchants or by priests. Well, there's two situations in the Old Testament where kings rode donkeys through their cities after they had already won dominion. But Jesus didn't come riding into town on some mighty steed. It was complete humility. The king had indeed come to herald the dawning of a new kingdom. But was it the kingdom that they expected? How then, in just five days, did this same crowd of people celebrating his arrival, crying, save us, O King, O Son of David, how did they then turn against him five days later and demand that he be crucified? To answer that, let's just take a very brief look at what Jesus does in the next five days. So today's Palm Sunday, his triumphal entry. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling an ancient prophecy in Zechariah. 
that he will come on a donkey. The crowd welcomes him with those words that come from Psalm 118, Hosanna in the highest, welcome king, referring to him as the messianic agent of the Lord, this coming king of Israel. And then on Monday, Jesus gives them all guns and says, tomorrow we rise. <laughs> no. He actually goes to the temple, gets super angry that there's a bunch of guys selling stuff, and kicks them out in anger. He returns to the temple, finds it full of Gentile traders and money changers, making a large profit. He drives them out and overturns their benches and tables. And the people of Israel must have been like, okay, okay, I think I kind of, there's a bit of violence. We were waiting for that. Okay, he's, just, he's warming up. He's warming up. He's getting ready. He's, don't worry, the, the guns are coming. Then on Tuesday... Jesus teaches a few parables, which are always, it's so funny to me. We obviously have the benefit of being able to look back and we know what everything means, but I just, you just laugh at what it must have felt like for them at the time being like, tell us about the kingdom. And he's like, it's like a fig. <laughs> like you always think like, if I was Jesus, I would have just been playing with people's brains a bit. Like, Jesus, are you hungry? I have food that you know not of. So, you're not hungry? <laughs> yes, I'm hungry. Uh, he teaches in the temple and on the Mount of Olives. His authority is questioned by the Pharisees who were teachers of the law. He avoids a series of traps, sort of intellectual traps that the priests had set for him, trying to catch him out, being like, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He's very smart. And then that night on Tuesday is one of the stories of a woman coming and anointing his feet with oil. It's the story of the alabaster box. Again, you can imagine these Jewish people being like, all right, he's talking a lot, he's teaching. At some point, he's going to tell us what the great plan is. He's going to call down the plagues. At some point, the fire is going to come. I'm ready. I'm ready for another pillar of fire or something, Jesus. On Wednesday, we have no idea what happened talks about it. It's not written. Leaves for the rest. He's allowed to sleep. And then Thursday was the Last Supper. In an upper room, they have a Passover meal where Jesus announces the new kingdom. And then he gives them bread and wine and says, eat this, it's my body. Drink this, it's my blood. And the disciples must have been like, huh? Even the disciples, by the way, who had spent all their time with him, didn't fully understand what Jesus was doing. We know this because even after Jesus was resurrected, if you read the opening chapter of Acts, just before Jesus is about to disappear up to heaven, the disciples hang out with him, and he's like, it's been great, guys. You got everything you need. And then, what do they say to him? They say, is this the point you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Even then, I think it's Acts chapter 1, verse 17 or 18, even then the disciples who had seen everything were like, so this is the kingdom part, right? So there they are on the Last Supper. And then what does this great military leader do? He washes his disciples' feet. That night they sing their hymn and then go to Gethsemane where Jesus prays in agony. And Judas disappears into the night to betray him. And then on Friday, 
is the crucifixion. Where Jesus is betrayed, arrested, and tried, the Jewish leaders condemn him to death, hand him over to Pilate, who caves in to the, cr- to the pressure of the crowd. The same crowd who five days earlier had said, save us, great king. And then Pilate's standing there going, what do, what do I do with this guy? And they're crying out, crucify him. And he carries his cross to the hill of his death. On the way, he's mocked and he's beaten. He's crucified, and then his body's placed in a tomb on Friday, where on Sunday, he would rise again. Amen to that. Some quick observations before I sort of get to the end of this thing. One of the first things to note when you read this story is that Jesus wasn't some passive victim of the political or religious assassination. And the writers of the gospel make this clear to us, but even even outside of that, when you look at the way that Jesus makes every move, it's always a choice. The Bible tells us that he surrendered himself up to death. They go out of their way to point out that everything that took place was the fulfillment of prophecy and Jesus knew full well what was going to take place from the moment he stepped into Jerusalem. From the very first moment, his commandment to go get a donkey shows that this was a man with total agency. There was nothing accidental or haphazard. He literally said to his disciples, and if you read the passage, and it's interesting, this is one of the few stories that's in all four Gospels, And it's pretty similar across the board. It's basically the same details each time. And he tells his disciples, I want you to go to this town, find a donkey. If they ask you who it's for, tell them the Lord needs it. And sure enough, the disciples go, they find the donkey exactly where he said it would be. It shows that Jesus was a man completely in control. He was a prophet. from the very first moment, shows he was a man in control of his destiny, even as he knew that his destiny was to ultimately die such a painful death. There's a really beautiful line in John's telling of the story in John 13, verse 1, that says, just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So how did the crowd that cried Hosanna to the son of David call for his brutal execution only days later? It's because they didn't understand what he really came to do. They failed to see that he didn't come to free the nation of Israel and return the physical kingdom to the Jews, but rather to start a new kingdom in the hearts of men. This humble king riding in on a donkey was not the great deliverer that they were expecting. He didn't come to free them from the Roman Empire, but to free all of mankind from the oppression of sin and death. Here they were expecting this great military deliverer, and what they got was a humble man on a donkey. This man who told them off for desecrating temple courts, who instructed them to pay their taxes to their oppressor, who prophesied that soon the temple itself, this place that they prized, would be destroyed so that not one brick would sit on another, who called their spiritual leaders hypocrites, who told them to love their neighbors as themselves. This is not the vocabulary of a great military dictator. Who told them that he was here to start a kingdom for the poor in spirit, a kingdom for those who mourn, a kingdom for the meek, 
a kingdom for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, a kingdom for the merciful, a kingdom for the pure in heart, a kingdom for the peacemakers, a kingdom for those who are persecuted for righteousness. He came to preach good news to the poor, freedom to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty for the oppressed. And what of this king? There's an incredible moment in John's telling of the Last Supper. If you think about it in Jesus' life, there were so many moments where people would go to attack him or even when in the wedding at Cana when his mother says, do a, do a magic trick, we need help with something. And his reply would be, what? My time has not yet come. It's not yet time for me to be revealed. It's not yet time for me to die. Well, in John 13 verse 3, it says, Jesus knew in that moment at the Last Supper, he's sitting there with his disciples and friends, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And in that moment, when Jesus knew that everything was in his power and control, what did he do? He washed his disciples' feet. Even washing the feet of Judas knowing fully well that only a few hours later this guy was going to go and betray him. It's almost like Jesus was showing them, let me show you what it looks like in this new kingdom to have all power and authority given to you. This humble king that the world was so desperately waiting for, who rode in on a donkey and presented himself as a lamb even unto his own death. In celebrating this Palm Sunday, I was praying about what besides sort of God, what is it in this story for us all to learn, which I believe is about the humility of Jesus and the kingdom that he established. I really also was praying for God to speak to us about what sort of we as a church community can also take from this, and this is what I felt. Uh, in celebrating Palm Sunday, and we go, in, we go into this week of reflecting on the death and resurrection of Jesus, I want us to reflect on what it means to really celebrate him as our Lord and Savior, and to really think about what that means. Who is this King of glory? What does it mean to welcome his new kingdom? What does it look like to really make him the Lord of our lives? Just like the Jews, I think that we can have a great urge to try and make Jesus into the kind of Lord and King that we want him to be. I think all of us have our own generational traumas, our own life experiences, our own experiences of faith. Some of us have come from our own backgrounds of faith. We've been hurt by faith. Some of us have no experience of faith. We've heard stories of Jesus. We've all had different expectations of what and who he is. Some of us have had terrible experiences. Some of us have had great experiences. Maybe you're just hearing about this guy for the first time. But all of us must bring those expectations and lay them down like palm leaves on the ground if we are to truly welcome Jesus as the king that he is. I feel like these days there's such an overwhelming desire in culture to try and bend things according to our worldview 
We hear these words like my truth, your truth, our truth. And it's, it makes sense. It's, easy to, it's easier to sort of go through life like that. The problem is with God, there can become this desire to make God into our image. Pick and choose the parts of Jesus' message that we like, the aspects of Christ that we love, the aspects of his kingship that we want to surrender to, to make him the king that we need, that we have been waiting for. Some tenets of the faith that we love, some aspects of his lordship, but not other parts. You know, I get it. Life is tough. And we want so much to be able to make things make sense according to us. But if we really mean it when we ask Jesus to be the Lord of our lives, then we need to accept him for the Lord that he is, the king that he is. We need to accept it in our what lordship means for those of us that are wealthy, for those of us that have parts of our heart that we struggle to surrender to him, for those of us that are hurting, that feel so protective over these parts of our lives that feel too painful to hand over. We need to step into what his kingdom is. Jesus established an upside-down kingdom. We need to know, what does that mean for us? Jesus said in Mark 8, 34, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And it's my prayer in this holy week that all of us get a new revelation of what it really means to welcome Jesus as a king into every aspect of our lives. I want to welcome the band back up. We're just going to sing a song.